You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church. Great to be with you here on this mild Sunday morning. It's a lovely winter Sunday morning. And on this first Sunday of Advent. And this, this sermon series, we will start off in Luke chapter 1. Pastor Joshua just read it for us. Uh, Before we get to the text, I want to just tell you about a story I came across this week when I was reading and studying uh, this opening chapter of Luke, in particular these last few verses of the first chapter, came across a story about a man who was profoundly impacted by this particular text of Scripture. His name was Leopold Kahn. Leopold Kahn was born in 1862 in the nation of Hungary, and he would later become an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. So he was a Hungarian Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and he's serving diligently in that role in the nation of Hungary until his late 20s. And in his late 20s, he began to be bothered by something. He was bothered by the fact that as a Jewish person, he, he would see in Scripture, in the Old Testament, the many prophecies of a Messiah, that God has promised there will be a Messiah. There, there is this soon coming king, and yet Khan was bothered by the fact that what is taking so long? He was bothered. He said, it doesn't make sense to me that God would wait this long to send a Messiah. He's living in the, in the 1880s, 1890s. And not long after he's bothered by this, he is studying the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 in particular, and he comes to a conclusion which is difficult for him. The conclusion he came to was the Messiah must have come within four or five hundred years of the end of the events of the book of Daniel. Now, just so happens that approximately 500 years after the events of the book of Daniel, Jesus is born. And this is not lost on Khan. He's, he's bothered by this. So he starts to do some additional research. And amid his wrestling, he actually moves to the United States and he ends up in New York City. And while he was there, he meets a congregation of Jewish people who are Christians, ethnic Jews who have embraced the Messiah. And they convince him to read the New Testament. And so he goes home and he reads the New Testament. He starts at 11 a.m. and he goes straight through until 1 a.m. In less than 14 hours, he reads the entire New Testament. And by the end of his reading, he is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus does indeed fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And one of the passages that stuck out to him in particular, one of the primary passages that got his attention was Luke chapter one. He said the glory of God was on display and that what we see in Luke one is a summary of all of the Old Testament prophecies and clear evidence that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. So I'm excited to look at Luke chapter one with you this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Father in heaven, thank you that we can read about conversion stories like Leopold Kahn. Thank you that you are saving people, Jews, Gentiles, 
black, white, Republican, Democrat. God, your gospel knows no bounds. You are in the business of saving souls. Thank you. God, I thank you for this gospel, the gospel of Luke, this inspired and inerrant document that gives us great insights into the life and ministry of Jesus, which presents us with the evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was prophesied about oh many years ago. Thank you for this book. And God, I ask that you would use the preaching of your word this morning and throughout this Advent sermon series. Use the preaching of your word to comfort and transform your people, I pray. Would you mold us to be more like Jesus, I ask. Amen. Well, as we examine the gospel of Luke, we quickly realize that Luke is, has a particular bent. Uh, Luke is using particular style and structure and vocabulary to send us a message. In fact, when we look at the opening verses of Luke chapter one, we see Luke is mimicking the exact same style and structure that was often used by some of the greatest historians in Greek history. We see Luke is in essence telling us, hey, what I'm about to tell you is not a metaphor or a fable. This is actual history. The events I'm about to tell you about, they, they actually happened. They're real events in history. They matter, and you should live your life as if these things actually took place. He eventually will spend the, the bulk of the book of Luke, of his gospel, telling us about Jesus, the Messiah who was promised. But before Luke gets to Jesus, here in the opening chapter, he spends a significant chunk of time with a man by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah was a temple priest. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth could not have children. And one day, while Zechariah is working, an angel appears to him, and the angel says to him in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. Zechariah then pushes back on the angel. He, he questions. He, he doubts. He's like, really? Like, my wife and I, we're not spring chickens, okay? We're not the youngest people around. We're old. Old people don't have kids, angel. I don't know if you know that, so um, th that ain't happening. Now, usually it's not ideal to doubt or question when an angel brings you a message from God. That's not usually the ideal response. So the angel says this to him in verse 20, behold, you will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. So because he does not believe the angel, the angel then says, listen, you're going to become a mute. And now for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah cannot speak. Later in this chapter, we are then introduced to a young girl named Mary. Mary happens to be cousins with Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, as many of us know. And, and Mary, of course, would become the mother of Jesus. An angel visits Mary and says to her, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. 
And then we see later in chapter one that Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and she stays there for three months. And you can imagine the conversations that Elizabeth and Mary are having about the miraculous pregnancies that they are now having. The time comes for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gives birth to John, the baby, and she brings them forth to the, to the people in their community, and she's going to name the child, and usually they would go to the father, but the father is mute at this point. He cannot speak, so they go to Elizabeth, and they assume Elizabeth is going to say, his name is Zechariah. We're going to name him after his father, and she says, no, his name is John, and the people are quite confused by this, so they, they look at they look at Zachariah, we're like, are we sure about this? And he kind of signals for them to bring him a, a piece of paper or writing utensil of some sort. And he writes down, yes, his name is going to be John. And so he corroborates or confirms that his wife is right. And they name the child John. And then immediately after this, something extraordinary happens. You look at verse 64, it says, immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loose. This is speaking, of course, of Zechariah. So Zechariah now, for the first time in months, can speak. He speaks out. And what we see in the last 12, 13 verses of Luke chapter 1 are the first words that Zechariah has spoken in several months. And he's had this encounter with the angel. He has watched a miracle take place. His wife's cousin Mary is is now pregnant with the soon coming Messiah, although she was a virgin. All of these, these supernatural events all around. And the first thing he says are the words that we see here in Luke chapter one that Pastor Joshua read for us a moment ago. Sometimes this discourse, this section is referred to as Zachariah's song, or sometimes referred to as Zachariah's Benedictus. What I wanna do this morning is highlight three things that stuck out to me as I've read through and prayed through this passage over the last few days. There are, there are three things that have stuck out to me that I would like to highlight for you this morning. Number one is this. Zechariah prophesied that his son, John, would prepare the way for the Lord. And we later see John embracing this role. Look at verse 76. It says this, Zechariah speaking about his son. He says, and you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah is like, my son is going to go make a way for the Lord who is coming. And then we see later in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, we see that John has become an adult. He is John the Baptist, and he's developed a sense of celebrity or notoriety. He's, he's kind of known in the community. And he's speaking to this large crowd and they're asking him, some of these people are asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that was promised? And John the Baptist very clearly says this in Luke three sixteen: I baptize you with water, but someone is coming who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. He makes it very clear, I am not that one. My job is to prepare the way. In John chapter three, we see John the Baptist saying, I must decrease, he must increase. John the Baptist knows his role. He knows he is to prepare the way. In baseball terms, he's the setup man. 
in football terms, he's the blocker, not the ball carrier going to score a touchdown. He's the guy pushing away would-be tacklers to create a pathway for the ball carrier to score the touchdown. John the Baptist, he's the, he's the appetizer preparing Israel's palate to receive their long-promised king. He's the opening act, warming up the audience for the primary act, the main act. John the Baptist knows they didn't show up to see me. They're here to see the king. And it's my job to point them to him. We see John gladly embracing this role. And quite frankly, we would be very wise to follow in his footsteps. So often, many of us want to be the star of our own stories. We want to be the main character. It's all about us and our desires and and our need for approval or praise or credit or attention or whatever it may be. But John understood it's not about him. It's never been about him. It would never be about him. It's all about Jesus. It was always all about Jesus. It will always be all about Jesus. And if we embrace the mentality that John had, God can use us profoundly. This is the exact problem that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. It was not enough for them to be with God in the garden. They wanted to be like God in the garden. They pursued their own divinity. Satan says, come, eat of this tree, betray God, and you will be like God. And that was appealing to them. And so often we want to sit in the place where God rightfully has earned the right to sit. We often want to sit on the throne of our own hearts and our own lives, but that's not our role to play. Adam and Eve pursued their own divinity. They wanted to call their own shots. They wanted to know what God knew, and that wreaked havoc. Their choice has brought devastation to the human race. And many of us have followed in their footsteps. Many of us have done what Adam and Eve did. We've made it about us. We've made it about our desires. And rather than being dependent on God, we want to be the masters of our own story. We would be wise to follow John the Baptist's example in this way. Oh, how how would our society be different? How would our churches be different? Our families be different? Our marriages be different? How would our nation be different if we embraced John the Baptist's sentiment and idea. He knew that he was not the star of the show. He was the trail of stardust leading to the superstar. He embraced a proper role and we would be wise to carefully do the same. This is my first observation as I read through this text. Second observation is this. Zechariah reminds us that God has promised to rescue his people. God has promised to rescue you. Look at verse 68 with me. It says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Visited and redeemed. The, the word visited here in English, we translate from a Greek word that's, that's unique. It's the verb form of a particular Greek noun. And the Greek noun we translate often as bishop or overseer. 
We see this word in 1 Timothy Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is giving the expectations or qualifications of the overseer. And we see in the New Testament that the word overseer is often used interchangeably with a word like pastor or elder. And so when it says that God visited his people, it's in essence, it's not saying that God just visited like he's on vacation hanging out. No, he visited with a purpose. He intentionally intervenes to pastor his people, to shepherd his people, to do what a good shepherd would do, protects them from attacks and feeds them as needed. He is pastoring, visiting his people to redeem them. Look at the next verse, verse 69 says this, it says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. old. Raised up a horn of salvation. Throughout this passage in Zechariah's prophecy, in his song, he is utilizing vocabulary and imagery directly taken from the Old Testament. It's as if Zechariah is making it very clear to us I want you to know that the events that are happening right now, these two miraculous pregnancies, my wife with John and and her cousin Mary with, with Jesus, these events that are happening before you, they are the fulfillment of something that we've been reading about for many, many years. These are not just ordinary times. Something spectacular is happening in our midst. And he's borrowing language from the Old Testament to intentionally show us that this fulfills what we see in the Old Testament. And the phrase horn of salvation is used multiple times in the Old Testament. And almost every time it points to the Messiah, the soon coming King. So in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to the horn of salvation. Zechariah is saying the horn of salvation has been raised now. And my son, John will make the way for the people to see that. Here are two verses from the Old Testament where that phrase is used. 2 Samuel 22 verse 3 says, My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of salvation, you save me from violence. The rock, the horn of salvation, saves his people from violence. And then again in Psalm 18, it says this, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation. Zechariah is making it very clear that the person that, that David is thinking about, the rock that he is looking ahead to, his Lord, the horn of salvation, that's the one that his son John will point Israel to. Look at verse 71, it says this. It gives us the reasons why God is raising up the horn of salvation. It says this, that we should be saved from our enemies. Zechariah goes, hey, I want to remind you that God has promised to rescue his people. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God doing this. We see God rescuing his people from the nation of Egypt. Pulling, rescuing Israel from Egyptian tyranny. We see God rescuing his people from Pharaoh and the armies of Pharaoh when their backs are up against the Red Sea. We see God intervening. We see God intervening over and over again throughout the era of the judges. We see God rescuing his people from their foes. We see God rescue David from Saul. 
and later rescues David from Absalom. And over and over again throughout Israel's history, even when Israel is unfaithful to God, God continually protects them from multiple assaults from various peoples around them. Zechariah is reminding us that God has a track record. God's track record is this. He always rescues his people. His people never go unrescued, ever. When the enemies of God come against the people of God, God intervenes. And Zechariah is saying, the enemies of God have come against the people of God, and God has raised up this horn of salvation to rescue us. Now, oftentimes, when we think about God rescuing us, we assume we know how it ought to go down, right? God promises to rescue us, and we immediately have a script as to how we think the rescue plan should unfold. But oftentimes, what we see in the pages of Scripture and as we study church history, we see regularly that God's plans of rescue don't always match up with what we have in mind. What God has in store is not always congruent with how we want things to go down. You see, for centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting for the Messiah to come, overthrow all of their oppressors, and to establish the Jewish theocracy. And here in the first century, the Jewish people, they are thinking the primary enemy is Rome. Remember, in the nation of Israel at this time, Rome is an occupying army. They've been here for nearly a century. And the Jews are ruled by a puppet king named Herod, who was put there by by the Romans. And the Jewish people want the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government. So it would make sense that some Jews would hear Zechariah's prophecy and think, yes, God has promised to rescue us. He is going to rescue us from the Romans. But what we see unfold through the Gospels is that God has his eyes on a much bigger enemy. The Jews are concerned about the Romans. God is concerned about these enemies known as sin, death, and the grave. The Messiah was coming to rescue God's people from the enemies, but not the Romans, the enemies of sin, death, and the grave. And Zechariah is reminding us that's going to happen. God has made a promise. God has never gone back on his promises, and he's not going to start now. Look at verse 72. He says this, God is going to raise them up. God's going to rescue them. He says in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father, Abraham. The reason we know for sure that God will definitely rescue his people is because he made a promise long ago to Abraham and our fathers. Zechariah is reminding us, God made a promise that all of God's people to Abraham and to those who come after him, God is going to protect them. God will rescue them. Now, side note, some people read these types of passages and they assume that this is referring only to ethnic Jews, that the promises of God in the Old Testament to rescue his people refer to ethnic Jewish peoples. But that's not actually what we see in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, Jesus says 
that whoever believes in him is counted as the offspring of Abraham. So all of the promises God made to Abraham apply to all of those who believe in Jesus. And we see this also taught explicitly in Romans and in Galatians. We, we looked at that back in the spring when we looked through the book of Galatians. Zechariah is saying God made a promise to Abraham to rescue his people. And for those of you who believe in Jesus, that promise is for you. If you believe in Jesus, you are a part of the family that God has a covenant with. And God has promised to be faithful to that family. And God never goes back on his promises. So recap, the first two observations that I see from Zechariah's words here. One, John the Baptist embraced the role given to him and we would be wise to follow him in that way. Second observation is that we remember that God has promised to rescue us and protect us. And third is this, third observation from Zechariah's prophecies is this. We can live without fear. Look at verse 74, it says this, that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear might serve him without fear. If we're honest, life is hard sometimes. Life is difficult. Life is filled with moments that feel uncertain, uneasy, unstable. And it's really easy to have moments where we are afraid in this life. You get a particular diagnosis from a doctor or a particular friendship doesn't quite go the way you had hoped or something happens at work, there are moments where we legitimately are tempted to fear. Zachariah is telling us because we know that God has promised to rescue us, we actually can serve him without fear. In fact, nearly 400 times throughout the Bible, we are commanded, do not fear. Nearly 400 times, God tells us, don't be afraid. And then we see these types of verses in John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Oh, this world's gonna be filled with trouble, but take heart, Jesus says, I've already overcome that. In 1 John 4, 4, the Apostle John says this, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yeah, he who is in the world, the enemy of our soul, it's it's tempting to be afraid of him. But remember that that the God of our salvation, the one that has been raised up for us, he is greater than he is in the world. And Matthew 16 says this, This is Jesus speaking, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus said, it doesn't matter what happens in your society, who's in office, what pandemics might come your way. It doesn't matter what's said on Twitter or cable news. I will build my church and all the things you're afraid of, they're not going to prevail. Zechariah is reminding us of this. We can serve God without fear because we know he is going to rescue us. 
In the early 20th century, there was a pastor by the name of Francis Grimke. Some of you may be familiar with Grimke. He was born into slavery in the 1850s. He later became a prominent uh, Presbyterian pastor in Washington, D.C. And he lived and pastored through the Spanish flu of 1918. And it was devastating to his community. And in the wake of that pandemic, Grimke says this, while the plague was raging, while thousands were dying, what a comfort it was to feel that we were in the hands of our loving Father, who was looking out for us, who had given us the great assurance that all things should work together for our good. While the pandemic was raging, while people are dying, thousands of them all around, what a comfort it was to know that God has promised to protect us, that he has given us the great assurance that all things work together for our good. God promises to protect us, to pastor us, to shepherd us. And that even if we physically die, that's not the end of the story. Jesus says this in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Even if we die, yet shall we live. Look at the final few uh, words of Zechariah's prophecy with me, uh, verses 78. Zechariah says this, because of the tender mercy of our God, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Jesus, our sunrise has come and he will give us light even when we sit in darkness, even when we sit in the shadow of death, he will be our guide and will guide us to the way of peace. So Zechariah promises, prophesies here, even in the most painful moments, even in the moments that feel disorienting, even when we feel like we are in darkness, he will be our light. I'll give you a little silly example to some extent. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to Texas on vacation to visit her family. And when we were driving back, we decided to make a quick pit stop in the state of Missouri, stopped by Springfield, visited one of my favorite restaurants on the planet, <clears throat> Lambert's Cafe, home of the Throat Rolls, a great place. While we were driving, it was late night. We had left Texas uh, late in the day, and it's late night while we're pulling into Missouri. And um, we're kind of out in a, in a stretch. We're, we're out in the middle of nowhere because Missouri. <laughs> we're just driving, right? We're on the freeway. There's some other cars out, but there's just, you know, the, most, the, the, the town we just passed uh, several miles back. And we're looking, and it's dark. There's not a lot of lights. I got my high beams on. It just still doesn't quite feel bright enough. And... All of a sudden, in the back seat, uh, in the car seat, our baby, uh, Letty, starts to vomit. And so she starts screaming, and I've got the little mirror. I can see that she's vomiting, and there's, and there's no shoulder 
to pull on. It's just sort of like a, a dip in the road. There's no shoulder. So now I'm going, oh my gosh, what do I got to do? Um, she's vomiting. This is dangerous. You know, and, and so Milena's my wife, she's like trying to reach back, try to help her. And, and we have an obnoxious dog in the back seat alongside. Those of you who've met my dog know that that's not an understatement to call him obnoxious. Um, and so this is kind of a moment where it's, it, the, it's, it's dark. There's no light. There's no sunlight. But the moment feels dark. It feels heavy. And so finally we get to the point where there's like, there's a minimal shoulder and I can kind of pull off, but then like my car is like on the, on an incline. And so it's, you know, it's kind of dangerous. We've got trucks that are flying by us and I get, to, I finally get to the back seat, pull her out, wipe her. She's vomiting. She's sick. She's, she clearly has a fever. This moment feels dark and it's physically dark. It's, it's just, there's no lights anywhere we are. And I'm looking up ahead and I can't see any lights. I'm looking back behind me. I can't see any, any lights, no gas station. The moment feels heavy, feels dark. And so we finally get her cleaned up a little bit and we, we start Figure, okay, maybe we need to go back. Do we drive ahead? I'm not sure. And I'm feeling some anxiousness, if I'm honest, in this moment. I'm not sure what to do. And so we, we get in the car and we, we start to drive again. And we're, we're kind of driving for a few minutes and it's, there's a little bit of an incline. And I'm just, I'm feeling the heaviness of this moment. Letty's still crying in the back seat, And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this anxiousness. And right as I come over the incline, I see way off in the distance, a light of a gas station. And instantly the light sort of sets me at ease. And so I just start putting the gas pedal down a tad bit faster than maybe is legal in most states. But I, so I'm, I want to get to that light. Now the moment is not over. She's still crying. She's still screaming. The moment is still dark outside. It still feels heavy, but I see the light and it births in me hope. that This moment is not going to last forever. And that's exactly what I think Zechariah is trying to teach us. The sentiment is that right now in the moment when there's tyranny and oppression, it feels dark. The moment is dark. It's heavy. But you look at the light and the light births in you the confidence that this moment will not last forever. You're going to make it through this moment. He is going to rescue you. As Zechariah says, because he is tender toward us. Tender. In my opinion, as I've studied church history, no one seems to understand this better than John Calvin, the great 16th century pastor, theologian. Calvin had married a widow named Idolette, and Idolette had two kids from her first marriage. Um, and they had, they, uh, they had actually experienced multiple miscarriages, several miscarriages. Calvin and his wife, Idolette, could not have children. And then finally, several years into their marriage, they finally give birth to a baby boy. And two weeks later, he dies. And Calvin wrote this, Calvin's words in the wake of his son dying the Lord has certainly inflicted a severe, bitter wound in the death of our baby son. But he is himself a father, and he knows what is best for his children. He knows what is good for his children. He has dealt us a severe blow, but I can trust God 
even in the most painful moment, the moment that feels dark, in the moment where I sit in the shadow of death, because I know that my tender God is gonna bring me through this moment. This moment is not going to last forever. We don't always know why God does the things he does. Sometimes he leads us down very painful roads, very difficult situations, but we can know this. He is tender toward you. His tender mercy is for you. He is a good father and he promises he will see you through. He will rescue you. This moment is not gonna last forever. There is no need for you to fear that this moment is gonna last forever because he has promised that it won't. There are moments in life that are dark. We feel like we're in a, a tunnel. Everything is dark around us. We don't know where we're headed. We don't know if this is ever gonna end. <clears throat> but he promises there is a light coming. He promises that. Psalm 23 verse four, famous verse says this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God says this through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42 verse 16. God says, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. I love that imagery. God says the rough places, I'm gonna make them level for you. And then God says this, these are the things I do. I do not forsake them. I'm the kind of God that brings light to the darkness. I'm the God that makes level the rough patches. I will not forget to do that for you. Church, God is looking at you. And when everything seems dark, when you're confused, when you're unsure, God says, do not fear. I will rescue you. I will guide you. I will be your light. This morning, remember these three things. One, John the Baptist embraced his role and we, ought to, we would be wise to follow his footsteps, follow him in that. Number two, God has promised to rescue us. God never goes back on his promises. He never has, and he's not about to start. He will rescue you. And number three, because we know he will rescue us, there is no reason for us to fear. There is no reason for us to fear. Church, Christ has come. He will come again. May those true truths inspire you and inform how you live your life every single day. And now we come to this table, not this table. We come to this table and we do it every single week. We come to the Lord's table to partake of this meal, to remember what God did, that he sent his son to become a man born of a virgin that he sent Jesus, that he raised up the horn of salvation to rescue us. We partake in this meal every single week to remember the first coming of Jesus and to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. We remember that Christ has died for our sins. He rose from the dead 
and that now we will be rescued because we've put faith in him. In just a moment, our pastors are going to come. We'll serve you the bread and then the wine. The meal is open to anyone here who is a follower of Jesus. If you have put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, we invite you to partake in this meal with us. But if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not put your faith in Christ, I would ask you to allow the bread and the wine to just pass by you. But don't allow the moment to pass by you. If you are not a believer today, I exhort you, I implore you, rather than taking communion with us this morning, take Christ instead. And if you have any questions of what that means, what that looks like, I'd love to have a conversation. Feel free to come on up after the service. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. As I said, our pastors are going to come. We'll distribute the bread. It's gluten-free. Hold it. We'll partake together. And then I'll come back up and we'll distribute the wine. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.